Hey, Urban Farm Podcast listeners. If you're as passionate about preserving the bounty of each season as we are, hey, I canned my first peaches at the age of 18, and that was a long time ago, then you're going to love what our friends over at Denali Canning have in store for you. They're on a mission to spread the love and knowledge of food preservation, and they're inviting you to join the journey for free. Right now, Denali Canning is offering free canning lids to anyone who wants to dive deeper into the world of food preservation. Yes, you heard that right, absolutely free. It's the perfect opportunity for both seasoned canners and those curious about starting. Denali is about quality, reliability, and supporting the canning community, ensuring that you get the best results every time you preserve. So why not give it a try? Visit DenaliCanning.com forward slash free to claim your free lids and start your preserving adventures today. That's DenaliCanning.com forward slash free. Did you know the best seeds for your garden don't come from the nursery? In fact, the seeds that will create the most robust and delicious fruits and vegetables come directly from your garden. This is because they are uniquely adapted to your growing conditions, better than anything you can buy from a fancy catalog or website. Through the magic of seed saving, it is quite possible to have the garden of your dreams. The best part is, Saving your own seeds is surprisingly easy and fun. With a bit of instruction, anyone can become a seed-saving superstar. Let us teach you how in our free seed-saving webinar. Just text SEEDS to 33444 to sign up or visit SeedSavingHacked.org for more information. That's SEEDS to 33444 or visit seedsavinghacked.org. You're listening to the Urban Farm Podcast, your partner in the grow your own food revolution. Whether you've just been introduced to urban farming or you're a lifelong advocate, we're sure you'll leave feeling more informed, equipped, and empowered to dig deeper into the soil of your local food economy. With you every step of the way, here's your host, Greg Peterson. Today on the Urban Farm Podcast, we have Matthew Shepard of the Xerces Society to talk about his experience with essential pollinators. Matthew's career began in England, where he established a successful community-based conservation program in Essex and helped to create Samphire Ho, an award-winning nature park. He has also worked with local communities and government agencies in Kenya to improve the management of the Arabuko Sokoki Forest on the north coast of Mombasa. He has created and maintained gardens that provide for insects and other wildlife everywhere he has lived, a passion that began when he learned gardening at his mother's side. Matthew's introduction to pollinator conservation actually came two decades ago on a sunny hillside in southern England while he worked on a project to protect disappearing grasslands. He was manually using an artist's paintbrush to transfer pollen between endangered orchids and realized there was obviously something missing in that ecosystem. You think? 
Five years later, after marrying an American and moving to Oregon, Matthew was working for the Xerces Society at the vanguard of a new effort to protect pollinators. In the past 15 years, he has collaborated with people from all walks of life to promote awareness about and protection of pollinator insects, especially native bees. Matthew is the author of numerous articles and other publications, including Attracting Native Pollinators and Gardening for Butterflies. He is now the Society's Communication Director, reducing the amount of time he spends with pollinators, but increasing the time supporting many of the other aspects of their conservation work. Matthew is here to chat about the book, 100 Plants to Feed Bees, published by Story Press. Welcome to the show today, Matthew. Thank you so much. I'm pleased to be here. Ah, great to have you. So I shared a bit about you. Can you fill in the blanks for us and share more about the path you took to get where you're at now? Yeah, sure. No, I mean, where I am now, I didn't at all know that I was going to end up here. I've never been one of those people who could sit down and you know, draw out a plan, say five years from now I'll be here and 10 years I'll be here. I've just managed to put together a, a career that I love and have uh, just taken the opportunities when they came along. Uh, I mean, I, although I now work for an organization that focuses on insects and is, has a very strong base in entomology, the, the study and science of insects, my own uh, academic background is, is utterly unrelated and I came through um, studying geography as an undergraduate. Oh, interesting. So that's what, that connect, yeah, no, that connected my, my love of trying to understand how people influence the landscape and the environment. Ah. And that's, in a way, that's the underlying um, theme that runs through so much of what I've done since. Mm -hmm. So how do people impact the environment around us? Oh, in so many different ways. And with with my background, my study in geography, you can follow it all the way back through the centuries. Um, I'm I'm from Britain, been living here in the United States for 17 or 18 years now. But in, in my home country, you can look at the landscape and you can see the influence of the farming activities mm. or the transportation networks and go all the way back to Know, to the Iron Age, basically. So you can go back two, three, four thousand years and see how people have, have changed the landscape and influenced everything around them. Yeah, it's a fascinating thing here. I, I live on the west coast of the United States and, you know, an old mm -hmm. building here is 80 years old. I would expect an old yeah. building in Europe to be, what, 800 years old? Sometimes, sometimes older. Yeah, yeah no, I mean, I... Years ago, I had the good fortune to travel to Egypt, um, and I, I stood there in a stone building that was reckoned to be two and a half millennia old and maybe one of the first stone buildings that had ever been constructed. So, yeah, there's some some remarkable structures. Yeah. I, I, I like to call that, uh, that's, that's more on the line of geologic time than it is uh, people time, you know, because yeah. we, 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 mm -hmm. we, we humans think in what... 80-year swaths of time. Whereas, Something like that. Yeah, yeah. Whereas nature thinks in millennia, which yeah, is quite fascinating. Yeah, and if, if you look at us, we're just a little, you know, we're just a little dot on the end of the line yeah. of time. So. Yeah, exactly. So for those listeners who are not familiar with the Xerces Society, can, can you tell us about it? 
Yeah, the Xerces Society is a non-profit conservation organization, and the focus of our work is upon insects and other invertebrates. And for those of you listeners who don't know, an invertebrate is an animal that lacks a backbone. So mm -hmm. it could be a bee, a butterfly, a dragonfly, earthworms, slugs, snails, all the tiny little, the, the little things, the things that we often dismiss as being creepy crawlers or or pests, you know, the ones that we swat away when we see them. But as E.O. Wilson so memorably and accurately described them, they are the little things that run the world. <laughs> and they are yeah. at, yeah, it's, it's, it's fantastic. It really sums them up beautifully because they are at the, the center of so much of, I mean, our life, basically. Yeah. I mean, they, they underpin our food supply. They keep our um, environment clean. They maintain the health of our rivers and creeks they they make the landscapes around us beautiful they help define the seasons i mean uh, we're also on the west coast in uh, northwest oregon mm -hmm. in the willamette valley and you look here and in the springtime the the roadsides and the prairies are in in bloom in the summer we go out and we pick our strawberries and raspberries and uh, blueberries and then in the fall we go to the pumpkin patch and we decorate our houses um with uh, pumpkins and you know and that's what the, the, all, all of those things revolve around or are dependent upon insects yeah do you know any startling facts about insects no oh, i could probably bore your listeners for, forever <laughs> on startling facts I mean, <laughs> well, just the sheer diversity and the sheer numbers of them um we often find that when you go and talk to someone about insects maybe they're uh, they got used to the number of birds, and they're going, oh, we've got 100 birds, different species of birds living here. And we're starting to say, well, you've got about 1,000 species of insects living here as well. Wow. Yeah, and so that, sometimes that can be just simply mind-blowing. Yeah. Yeah. So how did this Xerxes Society begin? We, we, actually, we just celebrated our 45th birthday. Wow. Um, a week or so back. Uh-huh. Yeah. Robert Michael Pyle, who's... Um, a butterfly scientist and a, a, an author and a, a speaker. Back in 1971, he was studying in, in Britain where so much of the early work on butterfly conservation had been done. And so he was there spending a year with these, these great inspirational scientists. And while he was there, there was a butterfly called the large blue butterfly mm -hmm. that had been becoming rarer and rarer in Britain, and it was just on the verge of extinction. And he went to a, a lecture one evening and talking about this butterfly. And on his way home, he was like, you know, th this should not happen. There should mm. be someone to speak out yeah. to pr protect these these butterflies and to stop this from happening again. And that was his inspiration. And that was the December the 9th of 1971 was when he, he launched um, that idea and started recruiting supporters to help him. Mm -hmm. Wow. Yeah. So we've, we've got quite a good heritage. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. What does the word mean? I, the, the Xerxes blue was a butterfly. Ah. Um, it was the, it was a, it used to fly in the San Francisco Peninsula area um, on the, the coastal sand dunes there. And it was last seen alive in 1943 and it's one of the the first butterflies known to go extinct in north america because mm -hmm. of human activity yeah. and so that was bob's 
inspiration for the for the name and the underlying mission is we're here to try and stop more butterflies and other insects yeah. from going extinct. So why are these insects so important to us? Well, they they run the world. <laughs> you know, I mean, we could lose we could lose elephants, we could lose deer, we could lose all the big fluffy feathered creatures, and uh-huh. and on the whole, the planet would just keep rolling along nicely. But you lose the insects, and you'll find yourself knee deep in detritus that won't rot away. You'll find yourself without a huge variety of foods that we. That bring such diversity and nutrition to our diet. Yeah. Um, the other wildlife would not have the food either. So they're, they're just hugely important. Perfect. So what programs are, are current priorities for the society right now? We have a, a major program looking at pollinator conservation. Mm-hmm. And obviously, the pollinators are something that have been in the news quite considerably for the last 10 or maybe 15 years, ever since um, the early reports of CCD, the colony collapse disorder mm-hmm. affecting honeybees, came came forward. But we had actually become involved with pollinator conservation back in the mid-1990s, in the early days of the Forgotten Pollinators campaign, when the, the first groups were going, well, hold up, you know, we, we're beginning to have evidence of disappearing bees, and we're not just talking about honeybees here, we're talking about the, the, the 3,600 species of native bees in North America. And so we have a major program now with, I would say, 15 staff working on it. Wow. Scattered around the country. Uh-huh. Yeah, it's, it's a great program. We've been able to take a, a leading role in promoting pollinator conservation. We train farmers, we train land managers, we work with gardeners mm-hmm. um, to provide them with the information and knowledge to actually be able to take action themselves. We also have uh, an active endangered species program, which is there's a lot of overlap between these programs inevitably oh, sure. because you know some of some of the endangered species we've been working to protect our bees, so you know there's a major overlap there. In fact, just a a, a couple of months ago, we had seven yellow-faced bees in Hawaii were added to the Endangered Species Act and officially protected, and they were the first bees to ever be federally protected wow, um, cool. by the Endangered Species Act. So that was that was quite a mm-hmm. quite a step forward. And there's a couple of bumblebees in the continental United States that are, uh, one of them's been proposed to be added to the Endangered Species Act and being officially protected. So there are these various really increasingly rare species that need the protection. Yeah. Our endangered species program also works a lot on um, rare butterflies. Mm. Um, we do a lot of work doing surveys for strange and obscure and little known species, whether it's a, a slug or a snail or beetles. And we do all sorts of things. Yeah. And now a, a major part of our work has been focusing on the monarch butterfly. Oh, good. So we're doing a lot of work in in California with the um, overwintering sites for the for the monarchs in California and also a lot of work across the country in promoting milkweed planting and protection and uh, making sure there's enough habitat for these butterflies because if they're going to spread out across millions of square miles of the continent they need to have the right plants there to support them yeah exactly exactly 
Wow, I yeah. am so glad you you all are out there doing this work because it's such an important piece cool. Thank of, you. of our ecosystem. Yeah, I would say that the one part that I hadn't mentioned so far is our pesticides program, mm -hmm. which again, kind of overlays over everything else because pesticides are everywhere. Yeah. But we've been a... a played a large part in many of the, the, the conversations and discussions about one particular group of insecticides called neonicotinoids yeah. and finding ways to limit the, the use of those and to push the agencies to go back and review and um, rethink whether these should in fact be considered safe enough for use. So yeah. we, we, we have fingers everywhere. Really nice, nice. You've you've mentioned bees a couple of times, and I would say that mm -hmm. mo that most of our listeners are very familiar with the honeybee, but there are a whole yeah. lot more bees out there that are more in the native category that we don't even know about. So, can you tell us about the native bees and why they're so important to the ecosystems? Oh God, I um, know pollinators. Yeah, I know. I was like, whoa, where do I start? Pollinators as as a whole, uh -huh. are just profoundly important. Um, something like 80% or more of our flowering plant species require an insect to move the pollen yeah. from, from, from flower to flower, and from doing that to make sure that there'll then be seed for the next generation or, or the fruit. And so that gives us something like one out of every three mouthfuls of food that we consume and a lot of other products, cotton is another product that we that we make a lot of or get a lot of benefit from mm -hmm. that's um, pollinated by uh, an insect. And of all the pollinators out there, certainly in North America, bees are considered to be the most important single group of, of pollinators. And so there are the honeybees, and honeybees are profoundly important to our agriculture. Mm -hmm. There's no other bee that can be so easily moved around, that can be so easily managed, can be brought in, put into a field for the two or three weeks you need it there yeah. while the crop's flowering and, and moving on. Um, but honeybees are um, a, originally a European species. They originally were brought to the United States with the early colonists because honey was one of the very few sources of sugar Oh, and right. we all need sugar for sweetening and for brewing beer and alcohol. And oh, there's so many other uses. Um, even the beeswax was hugely important. Oh, yeah. Um, you know, at one point, beeswax was worth more than gold oh, wow. just on, on, the, on the market. Yeah. So, um, yeah, honeybees are profoundly important. But there are something like 3,600 species of other bees in the United States and Canada. And these include bumblebees and mason bees and sweat bees and yellow face bees and polyester bees and you know, longhorn bees, and digger bees and mining bees. And they go on and on and on. Wow. And most of them look unlike anything you think a bee should look like because they're not necessarily striped. Mm -hmm. they're, they're different colors. They're, you know, they don't carry, I mean, people imagine a bee carrying that big lump of pollen on its back leg, just like the honeybee. Right. Um, but most of the, most of the bees don't, don't carry it like that. So they don't fit that image that we might have of what a bee looks like. So we just don't notice them. Cool. 
and they're you know they're just here because I know we have mason bees here, but we don't see them very often. So these are these are insects that are just in our space, and we may not even know what they are yeah. to look at them. No, that that's right. But I mean, we do share the space with them. And going back to my my early comments about people changing and influencing the the environment, the we are changing the landscapes around us. Mm-hmm. I mean, I can look out of my window and I see houses and I see gardens, but some of the gardens are just mown grass, and so there's nothing there for a bee, for example. Yeah. Um, so some of these bees are able to survive around us, but others are just kind of being pushed out of the way and pushed to the margins of, of the places we live. Yeah. And, I, and it's really important. I got an email recently from somebody that said, hey, I've got this bug in my yard. How do I kill it? And mm-hmm. um, when I reached back out to her and I said, do you have a picture of it? And she actually had a picture of it. And it was actually an assassin bug, which is a, you know, a beneficial bug in our yard. So it's really important for everybody to find out what it is, you know, before you, you know, before the first thing you do is to go out and kill it. Yeah, no, we, we often say that if you have a garden, if there's no signs of insect damage, then you've probably got an unhealthy garden. Right, exactly. Um, because a healthy garden should have the full community of, of insects. Yeah. You know, whether they're pollinators or assassin bugs eating things or wasps that are catching and paralyzing other insects and taking it back to the nest to feed their young or... Now, there's so many different ways in which insects work to keep our environment in balance. Yeah. And if you don't have them, then, then yeah. your your patch is out of balance. Yeah. I like that. Your patch is out of balance. I like that. <laughs> so, so about a month ago, I got this amazing book from our friends over at Story Publishing called 100 Plants to Feed the Bees. And it's by the Xerxes Society. And I immediately got on the phone with them and I said, oh my gosh, we need somebody on the show to talk about this book. So hence you're here and thank you so much for being here for that. So 100 Plants to Feed the Bees. Let's tell me about it. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's that title is great because it explains exactly what the book is. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, there's some introductory information in the book explaining what bees are and how they interact with plants and so on. But the core of the book is profiles and information about 100 plants that will be great for bees. When people start thinking about what they can, they've heard about bee declines and and they want to do something and they come to us and they say, wow, what can I do? And there's lots of things you can do. Mm -hmm. You You can, reduce pesticides and you can make sure you've got nesting sites and other things like that but the core of what you need you need to have the food for them you know and if, if you don't have the right kind of plants then you're not going to be supporting the bees and so the simplest thing that anybody can start doing to help bees is to start growing plants growing the flowers that the bees can feed on and then they'll find them and then they'll be doing better yeah. but for many people you know, you go to a garden center and you say, well, which which plants do I need for bees? And you look at the plants and you go, oh, well, that's a pretty plant. Uh-huh. But just because we find it attractive doesn't mean that a bee will find it attractive. Yeah. And so it, in this book, we want to try and make it as simple as possible because you're faced with plant lists and information from so many different sources. And 
we just want to nail, I mean, not nail, but focus in um, on the, the key things. And, you know, if you can get as many of these different plants growing in your patch, then you're going to have a fantastic area for plant for bees yeah. and a fantastic area for plants too. So what's one of your favorite plants in this book? Well, I've always loved asters. They're, they're, they're beautiful and they're, they support a very wide range of um, insects, more than just bees. I mean, they're great for bees for sure, but there are other insects that will come to them. Mm-hmm. Um, and they, they flower late in the summer, so they come out at a time when it's almost like, for most people, your, your garden is beginning to fade. It's beginning to look a bit weary and tired after the summer. Right. And then all of a sudden, the late summer into the fall, the, the, these asters start popping up, um, and they just they just fill a gap and extend on through the season. Nice. So I turn to page twenty-eight in the book, uh, one hundred plants to feed mm-hmm. the bees, and that's where the asters at. And I, I just want to kind of review what's here because this is great information. First of all, it calls out the name of it plus the botanical name of it. Uh, and then on the left below that are pictures of the different pollinators that it attracts, which is really cool. Uh, and then uh, on the next page, the facing page, the uses of it. And one of my favorite pieces is a map where they will grow. Um, so you, yeah. guys, you guys have put a lot of information into this book. Can you tell, tell me how it came about? Well, again, it was trying to answer that that question that so many people were coming to us. They would they would say, "What can I do?" And you know, we we already had plant lists, and we had some other books on, you know, how to attract native pollinators, or you know, your gardening for butterflies, what you can do. But we realised that so many of these things were regional, and so we wanted to try and produce a single resource that would be useful for people wherever they lived yeah. in the United States and, and Canada. And that, that's why there's that map. I mean, on the on the Aster page that we're talking about, the map is probably shows them growing everywhere because yep, it does. They will, but there are a lot of there are a lot of different species. Um, and so even though this book covers the the entire extent of continental US and Canada it doesn't necessarily mean that there's one species that will suit the entire area. And so you will have to look a little more closely to try and find the species for your your region. Yeah. Because the local native plants, without a doubt, the best type of flowers to plant for bees. Gordon Frankie, who is based in University of California in Berkeley, has spent several years now it started as a small project and it just kept growing because it was such a remarkable finding but he went around and he he looked in suburban urban gardens identified all the flowers that were growing in these gardens Uh and identified all the bees that were visiting the different flowers and what what he was able to show from from the huge database was that native flowers supported not just more individual bees but a greater diversity of species Mm -hmm. and so you know that that's you know that underscores the importance of native plants so anytime someone's out there wanting to do something and find the plants they should always try and find the plants that are are native to the area they live in yeah 
And one of the cool things on page 29 of the book, it talks about recommended species of varieties for particular areas. So it gives that data as well. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And so we, we, we've tried to provide some of that information too, but there may well be other, other species that yeah. uh, it's, it's one relatively small book and it's not going to be a, a totally con, um, comprehensive encyclopedia. Yeah. But we also didn't want to overwhelm people with information right. because sometimes that is also just too much. Well, plus it, th this book has amazing photographs in it, hundreds of them, which is yeah, just wonderful. So really yeah. beautiful, beautiful book here. Cool. Thank you. Absolutely. So I'm going to shift on you and I'd like for you to talk about a time you failed, how you overcame that failure and what you might have learned from it. Yeah, now this is, these are always the times that are tricky going, well, what, what was a failure? But I mean, I can certainly look back to times when I've been managing um, sites for wildlife. Um, my own background, I mean, I talked more initially about about my, my geography, but I moved from college into hands-on conservation work and spent quite a few years working directly with landowners and farmers and others to plant hedgerows and create new woodlands and um, you know plant meadows and such like. And I can I can look back and remember times when we had a there was one time we had a meadow that I was helping someone manage, mm -hmm. which had a lot of ant mounds on it. And so there was this, the, the people didn't realize the ant mounds were there initially. And so we went in and we looked and we started talking to them about what would be the best way of managing this site. And the, their first reaction was to send a tractor in with a mower because <laughs> <laughs> they wanted to keep the grass, they wanted to keep the grass short. Yeah. But they also kept a lot of these ant mounds short as well. Um, and oh. so it started as a conversation of how can we manage this land, and it turned into a conversation about, oops, yeah, <laughs> you know, that, that, was, that was the wrong thing to do. And, and, and basically my, my failure was that we'd raised the profile of this site, and until then the ant mounds hadn't been wonderful, but at least they hadn't been smashed. Yeah. And so then, then we had to turn the conversation around with the landowner to say, okay, so that, that, that tractor did not work very well. Um, what can we do to this site? And it, it took a few more years until we were able to shift that, that action around and gradually get the machinery smaller and smaller. And eventually we ended up with cattle on the site. We were able to nice. find a way in which we could bring some cows in yep. um, just for a few weeks each year had to put them the right kind of fencing up and uh, find a, a find a supply of cows and this was in southern england in an area where there really weren't many animals it was mm -hmm. mostly an arable um, farming area and so we had to go some distance to find the livestock that were able to bring them in and then once we had done that and then you could begin to see the wildflowers beginning to return because the cows instead oh, of yes. uh, unlike a mower that just comes through and chops everything short the cows are much more selective. And then you could begin to see the grassland beginning to develop and, and recover its wildflower diversity. And also you could see the, the plants on the ant mounds. The ants begin to rebuild their mounds. And the, the plants growing on the ant mounds are different from the ones growing in the, the flat areas around. Oh, interesting. Of course that would and, be um, the case. Yeah, because the soil is warmer and drier, yeah. and better drained, and has a different texture. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and then we finally, the, the, the reason for wanting to manage that site is because it was one of the last sites in that area that supported a, um, a particular type of blue butterfly. Mm. And through all of this, that had been our, our aim was to encourage the butterflies and to build the population of butterflies. And I'm, I'm very pleased to say that after about four years, we began to see the number of butterflies rising again. So Nice. Something that came out of that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, this is our best way to learn is to, you know, jump in, do a project and, you know, oops, you make a mistake, but got to find the bonus in it. Yeah. Yeah. So what do you consider your biggest success? When you were reading my bio, you you mentioned that I'd worked in Kenya. Yes. And uh, Araboka Sokote Forest. And that was a, that was a funny situation because I went there as a volunteer through a British organization called Voluntary Service Overseas, which is it's kind of the equivalent of the Peace Corps here in the United States. Right. So you, you, you go in and you work closely with um, the local communities. And I'd gone there um, expecting to be the junior member of a team of three people working uh-huh. to promote um, sustainable management of the forest and to build... Um, you know, ecotourism and tourist facilities and encourage development of, of, of tourism to the forest as a way of supporting and bringing a new income to the, the villages around the forest. And the week before I arrived in Kenya, the, the funding for that project was cut. Mm. Um, and so I turned up instead of being, as I say, the junior member of a team of three. I was the team, <laughs> and I didn't have any, and I didn't have any budget, and I was in a, you know, a new country. Yeah. <laughs> Barely spoke the language. We just kind of, they said, "Well, here you are. Here's a, here's a laptop computer," which was remarkable because I, I, this was back in, you know. Back in the 1990s, oh, and wow. computers were not that common. So oh, if you yeah. give them a laptop computer in, in Kenya, of all places, it was weird. And so they said, here's a laptop computer, here's a motorbike. Now go down there and see what you can do. And so I just had to go down and try and try and make something out of, out of nothing. And, of course, I arrived and the expectation was very high from the, the Kenya Wildlife Service. Oh, of course. The, the forestry department and the other people down there because they, they for a year or more they've been told all this money would be coming and mm-hmm. be all these great projects and then they get me so we had to rebuild relationships with the people down there we had to find new ways of trying to work towards some of the sustainable development aims that everyone had been talking about i had to go out and meet with the local village chiefs and the local wow. um, companies and mm-hmm. all, all of that, all of that going on and trying to build something new and keep it going. And I was there for two years and I'm very happy to say at the end of two years, we had got the beginnings of um, a group of tour- tourist guides who we've been training in um, ornithology and bird watching and, education and outreach techniques, you know, better ways to present the information because this forest had some bird species which occurred nowhere else in the world. They were endemic to the forest. And so Uh we already had this in with tourists who just bird watch. I mean, the 
the crazy, intense bird watchers who just want to check these species off for their world list. But also five miles away, the beaches of the Indian Ocean and the tourists who were just lying there getting the sunburn who wanted to do something different. You know, to take, let's take a three-hour excursion into that forest. Right. So we've begun to build the basic infrastructure to enable that to happen. And then I, I left and they, they actually sent someone else in to keep the work going. So the fact that they felt that there was enough there to continue supporting it and to have someone else to take it on and move it to the next stage was just great. Yeah. Excellent. Good job. So I'm all about education and I have to know, is there a book that has been influential in this process in your life that you can share? Yeah, and it's a really old book because I'm, I'm pretty old myself now. I credit Jonathan Porritt, who was the, um, the leader of Friends of the Earth in Britain back in the 1980s as the person who really inspired me to take you know, my, my geography and whatever else and turn it into a conservation career. Because back then, there really wasn't that much going on in conservation. It wasn't really seen as a, as a, a realistic option. Mm-hmm. Um, and so he produced the book Seeing Green, which I guess was published way back in the mid-1980s. I can't remember now. But it was, uh, for me, it was an eye-opener because it really began to explain how people were impacting things um, and uh, begins to explain things in, in a way you know, that understand the politics of it and beginning to set um, concern for the environment and conservation within terms that society can understand. Um, and that's, I mean, he, he was the person that I, through Friends of the Earth, I started volunteering the local Friends of the Earth group where I was living in England at the time. And that was, in many ways, the spark that got me going into yeah. where I am now. Wow. And this is, by the way, this is exactly the reason I like asking this question, is because this book changed your life forever. By the way, mm-hmm. by the way it came out in 1984, Seeing Green, The Politics yeah. of Ecology Explained by Jonathan Porritt. It'll be in the show notes today, guys, if you want to look it up. It uh, cool. looks like an amazing book. I'm going to get me a, co- get me a copy. I suspect it may be out of print now, but there may be a few secondhand copies floating around. I, I'll tell you. I have my, have my own personal copy right here in my hand. Oh, nice. Yeah, the, <laughs> Ish, the book Ishmael by Daniel Quinn lives that way with me. So, But I'm on, I'm on, uh, yeah. you know, on our favorite rainforest site out here looking at it, and there are plenty of copies of this book, Seeing Green, The Politics of Ecology Explained. So... So what one final piece of advice do you have for our listeners? I never give up. Yeah. I mean, I, that happens at the moment. There's a lot of people feeling not very happy about what's <laughs> happening in the national politics <laughs> and feeling that there's yeah. some changes afoot that they may not, may, may, may not like. Yeah. That's the nature of a democracy. Sometimes you like it, sometimes you don't. Yeah. yeah never give up you you always have to retain and remember what's important to you you have to keep hold of the things that are at the core of who you are and you have to keep working to move things in the direction you want to see them go yeah yeah beautiful beautiful well thank you so much for joining us on the show and sharing your experience with us today matthew it has been a treat getting to chat with you 
Yeah, no, thank you so much. I've thoroughly enjoyed it too. Absolutely. So how can our listeners uh, find out about the Xerces Society and get a hold of you maybe? Yeah, well, if you go for our, our website, uh, which is xerces.org, which I'll spell that X-E-R-C-E-S.org, and you'll find just a huge amount of information there, or information about our different programs, information about uh, what you can do, downloadable fact sheets, um, all sorts of things like that. And you'll also find a, a staff directory with contacts for everybody. Um, Beautiful. My, I mean, I can give out my email address if people want, but you go there and you'll just find it. But it's matthew.shepherd at xerces.org. Perfect. Spell Xerces again for us. X-E-R-C-E-S. And that's X-E-R-C-E-S dot O-R-G dot org? That's right. Perfect. You can also find show notes from today's podcast at urbanfarm.org backslash feed the bees. Well, that's it for today. Thanks for joining us on the Urban Farm Podcast. Did you know the best seeds for your garden don't come from the nursery? In fact, the seeds that will create the most robust and delicious fruits and vegetables come directly from your garden. This is because they are uniquely adapted to your growing conditions, better than anything you can buy from a fancy catalog or website. Through the magic of seed saving, it is quite possible to have the garden of your dreams. The best part is, saving your own seeds is surprisingly easy and fun. With a bit of instruction, anyone can become a seed-saving superstar. Let us teach you how in our free seed-saving webinar. Just text SEEDS to 33444 to sign up or visit SeedSavingHacked.org for more information. That's SEEDS to 33444 or visit SeedSavingHacked.org. We hope you enjoyed today's episode of the Urban Farm Podcast. Remember to listen three days a week for tips, advice, and resources to help you on your journey with urban farming. You can find us on the web at urbanfarm.org or send us an email to podcast at urbanfarm.org. In the words of Vincent Van Gogh, great things are done by a series of small things brought together. Be encouraged that with each lesson learned and skill developed, you are one step closer in the direction of your dreams. Hey, Urban Farm Podcast listeners, if you're as passionate about preserving the bounty of each season as we are, hey, I canned my first peaches at the age of 18, and that was a long time ago, then you're going to love what our friends over at Denali Canning have in store for you. They're on a mission to spread the love and knowledge of food preservation, and they're inviting you to join the journey for free. Right now, Denali Canning is offering free canning lids to anyone who wants to dive deeper into the world of food preservation. Yes, you heard that right, absolutely free. It's the perfect opportunity for both seasoned canners and those curious about starting. Denali is about quality, reliability, and supporting the canning community, ensuring that you get the best results every time you preserve. So why not give it a try? Visit DenaliCanning.com forward slash free to claim your free lids and start your preserving adventures today. That's DenaliCanning.com forward slash free.